0: invite you now to turn in your bibles to the book of first peter chapter 1 our text this morning is from verse 10 to verse 12 of first peter 1 if you please stand with me as we hear now the word of god the very word of god that is life it is breath It is indeed our food. 1 Peter, chapter 1. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which the angels desire to look into. Let us pray. O Heavenly Father, we thank you for this, your word. We pray that you would illumine your word in our minds and in our hearts. By the work of your Spirit, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may have had in your life the opportunity to go on a family vacation. Taking all the kids someplace that they have never been before. And at times, you go to a place that is new and exciting. Say, the Grand Canyon, or say, Niagara Falls, or perhaps Mount St. Helens, something that is wondrous to behold. And so if you were to go, say, to the Grand Canyon, perhaps especially younger children might come up to you, even if you'd been there before and say, Dad, Mom, what's this all about? What's the big deal? What's the Grand Canyon like? Oh, what's a canyon? And you, wanting to have a good family vacation, would dutifully not just reply quickly, but perhaps go into some books, find some pictures, go onto the Internet, use that ubiquitous tool, Google, Grand Canyon, pictures. You'd come out with distances. It's so deep, it's so wide. The river has removed so much dirt, etc., and go on and on and describe it. And that would be well and good, and it would be good preparation, wouldn't it? But then the time would come when you would take that vacation, and you would go to the Grand Canyon, and you would stand out and look at it, and even if you had been there before, you would not be thinking, oh, it's so high, oh, it's so many feet across, oh, that picture off Google. Your reaction would be more like, wow. That's breathtaking, right? Well, that's a little bit of a picture in an earthly sense of what's going on in this passage this morning. You see, we can talk about grace. We can recite to each other the points of grace. We can have books that talk about grace. But Peter is here to remind us of the wonder of grace. In our lives. So much so that it is not inappropriate to talk about amazing grace. You see, sometimes we're afraid to because that hymn is so well known. And it's so common. But that is really what grace is. It is amazing. It is wondrous beyond compare. And Peter describes in vivid detail for us some of what makes grace so amazing. And he also talks about who grace amazes. You, me, the prophets, the angels. So what I would like us to see here in this description of grace this morning is first, a grace that is prepared by God. Grace is not just something that comes randomly. Grace is prepared by God. But God doesn't just prepare our grace. He predicts it. As well, as we'll see this morning, a grace that is prepared by God, a grace that is predicted by God. And then finally, we will see that grace is not just something that comes quietly, silently in a corner to us. No, it is prepared, it is predicted, but then grace is proclaimed. A grace prepared, predicted, and proclaimed. Look here what Peter says, beginning at verse 10 as we see a grace that is prepared by God. He begins, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, searched and inquired carefully. Peter begins here obviously linking what he has said before. We've spent several weeks now looking at the first chapter in this epistle and describing what this salvation is. Haven't we? He now says, now, what I've just told you about concerning this salvation, the salvation that I just mentioned in verse 9, this is what it's like. And we need to remember what this salvation is like. First, we see that God is the preparer of this salvation, right? In verse 2, it is according to the foreknowledge of God that grace comes to us. It is according to His election that grace comes to us. We see that this salvation is a substance for us. It is an inheritance that comes to us. Verse 4, it is an inheritance that is incorruptible, undefiled, unfading. It never goes away. This is the salvation that God has prepared for us. But it's not just something that God has prepared and that is an inheritance. We also saw that it is a present possession for us. In verse 8, though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy. Why? Because you have obtained the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. All of this, we might say the whole ball of wax is what Peter is talking about. This is the grace, the salvation that has been prepared by God. God doesn't just prepare the salvation, the grace itself If we look on in verse 10, we see that God prepares to communicate that salvation to us. You see, God prepared from eternity past, from time beginning, no, from before time began, not only the salvation that would come to us, but that He would tell us about it. Do you cease to marvel about that? Not only that we have salvation but that God tells us about it? Perhaps an earthly illustration would help. It's as if perhaps you had a long-lost cousin that left you $50 million. And they were very diligent. They put down in their will, I leave to you $50 million. And I leave it in a Citibank account. And the number of the account is this. And you are a cosigner on that. And this is all yours upon my decease. Now, it would not do you much good to have that if on the occasion of your dear long-lost cousin's death, no one told you about this inheritance. Or no one told you that there was a bank account. Or no one told you that you even had a long-lost cousin. It wouldn't do you any good. You need to know about this so that you can possess it. And oftentimes, in these cases, in earthly matters, it's the job of the attorney to come and knock on your door or send you a letter and say, by the way, you have inherited from your long lost cousin. He's a messenger. He's one that has been prepared beforehand by your cousin to tell you of this good news. Even so, in a much more magnificent fashion, in a spiritual way, the Lord has prepared beforehand to tell you about grace that is coming. You see, the very fact that we're reading this letter is proof of that, isn't it? Does that, can anyone tell me where Peter lives? Is he... From Katy or Houston? No, of course not. This is a man who lived thousands of years ago in a land where probably the vast majority of us have never set foot. And the Lord prepared him to tell us of the grace that would come unto us. But not just that. Because in Peter's day, Peter could look back and say, men that I never knew, and he's speaking to these people in Bithynia and Pontus and Cappadocia, And he's saying, men who lived in a place that you've never set foot, a man named Isaiah who lived at court, a man named Amos who herded animals, they testified beforehand of the grace that would come unto you. Because God had prepared it. You see, this is the purpose of the Bible, especially the Old Testament. To tell us beforehand of the grace that would come to us. In the Lord Jesus Christ. Francis Schaeffer put it this way, and I think it's well worth remembering. One of, there are many, one of the main differences between the living God and all other so-called gods is that the God of the Bible speaks. He said, He is there and He is not silent. And that is certainly true of our Lord. Our Lord is a talking God. He tells us of what He has prepared for us from time beginning. He's not only prepared our salvation, and He's not only prepared the communication, He's done this for a specific purpose. It has been specifically prepared with direction to you and to me. Notice what Peter says. It's the grace that was to be yours that the prophets thought about, spoke about. It's not just grace in the abstract. It is grace with a purpose. If you know and have experienced grace in your life, it is not an accident that might wander back out of your life. No. Grace comes to your life because of the purpose of God. This has been grace prepared by God. But... God doesn't just prepare this grace. He also tells us of this grace. And that's what Peter is speaking in the main about here. A grace that is predicted by God. And it is predicted by whom? In verse 10 we see the prophets. It is the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours. From beforehand, you see there's an alliteration here that we shouldn't lose. Some translations bring together prophets prophesying. And they say, men prophesied or prophets spoke. But really, the Bible speaks here in piling up terms. It says, the prophets prophesied. The emphasis is on, before the things happened, the prophet spoke about it, that God used men. He communicated to us on our own level. Men, that James says, have a nature like ours. Isn't that a gracious blessing to us? When we sit and think about the grace that comes to us and whether we're worthy of grace, we can look at a prophet like Moses and see how many times he messed up. We can look at a prophet like David and see how often he disobeyed God and yet was faithful to the Lord. By God's grace, we can see prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah who despaired at times. A prophet like Hosea who could not understand his miserable circumstances of life. And yet they still spoke of the grace and glory of God. What a blessing to us that this is how God speaks. And because these are men like us, of like passion as we are, how they think about this, Is interesting. Peter says that they searched and inquired carefully. Inquiring. There's actually three words there, but they are basically of the same meaning. They're of the same word group. It basically means that there was a great effort that they expended in trying to figure out what was going on. This was no casual perusal. There was a constant interaction between the prophet and his message. The prophet would give his message and he would say, Wow! That's what God said he's going to do. I wonder how he'll do it. And they searched the other scriptures. They tried to figure out exactly what God was doing. They tried to figure out, Peter says, what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating. They were mulling over their own words. You know the biblical picture for this. It's how a cow eats. Right? Cows have... Now, I'm no agricultural phenomenon, but I think they have four stomachs. Someone will tell me later they have six or three. But cows have multiple stomachs. And what they do is they eat grass, and it goes into a stomach, and they regurgitate it, and it comes back up, and they chew it again, and it goes back down, And it comes back up and they chew it again to get all the nutrients. Now, for us, that's a little bit squeamish. But, that's how we are to treat the Word of God. That's how the prophets did. They mulled it over in their minds. You can almost imagine Isaiah, after he gives this prophecy of Emmanuel, God with us, saying, I wonder, let me check what Moses wrote in Genesis. And then he thinks about it some more and he says, well... Let me see what the Psalms have to say about this. And he goes back and looks at the Psalms. Job, what does Job have to say? You can imagine that. That is the kind of Bible student that we are to be so that we can understand how amazing this grace is. You see, if the prophets can spend their time trying to know their Bible better, how much more should we? We're talking about men who directly spoke to God who received the very Word of God. And that just spurred them on to study the Scriptures more, to find out more about God's grace. It is a careful seeking that they did. This is in great contrast to, oftentimes, what we consider seeking or inquiry in the world today. We see it amongst others, but we also can see it in ourselves. We consider someone to be seeking if once during the course of a week they use the word God. Or if somewhere in their house, on some table, there sits a Bible. We consider that seeking. But that's not what the Bible talks about. The Bible talks about seeking being like a man in a desert who is digging in the sand to find the water hole that he thinks is there. He's seeking it lest he die. That's biblical seeking. That's what these prophets did. And it's no wonder, because they were directed by the Holy Spirit. You see, these prophets were inquiring what the Spirit of Christ, which was in them, was indicating when He spoke beforehand of the sufferings. Now, if we think about this, this is an important point. Perhaps some of you children know the answer to this question from the old children's catechism. If I were to say to you, who wrote the Bible? The answer, of course, is holy men who were inspired by the Holy Spirit. Right? The Bible is a product of both men and the Spirit of God. You can't separate them. The Bible didn't drop out of the sky, and yet... It wasn't something made up by a bunch of people. There's not stuff in there that needs to be edited. No one's looking for commas or semicolons. Because if it was, there would be errors in it. As often as we try, and even though we check each other, when we do proofreading, Pastor Carol and I miss a comma or a period or a sentence or a verb. It happens. Not so with the Bible. Because the Bible is directed and written by the the Holy Spirit Himself. He is the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Now, Peter uses this phrase. It's only one of two places in the Bible that the Holy Spirit is specifically called the Spirit of Christ. The other place is Paul in the book of Romans. But here, Peter does it for a reason. Because... He wants us to know that the Holy Spirit who wrote this Bible that we have and who inspired the prophets to tell us about the grace that would come to us came from Jesus. Do you get the wonder of that? The Lord Jesus Christ, who suffered and died on a cross, that His people might not perish in His sins before His incarnation, before time sent the Holy Spirit to inspire prophets to tell us what He would do. So that even before He did it, sinners might have hope. Like Job, who can say, I know that my Redeemer lives. Like David, who says, don't take the joy of my salvation from me. This is the one who sends the Holy Spirit. But there's more than that because the Holy Spirit's job is to testify what Jesus Christ tells him. This is another common problem in churches today. We tend to set the Holy Spirit against the Father and the Son. And if something mysterious and odd is happening, that's the Holy Spirit's job. If it's orderly and good and out of the Bible and reading, that's God the Father's job or God the Son's job. The Holy Spirit is like the interesting, helpful uncle who strikes us. Now, the Holy Spirit does inflame our passions. He does give us emotion to love the Lord. He does cause us to pray even when... We don't know what we should pray for. But the Holy Spirit does these things by the book that He wrote. Do you see that? The Holy Spirit has testified beforehand through prophets to tell you of the grace that would come unto you. Do you want to know how amazing the grace of God is? The grace of God is so amazing that it can change and save a Syrian leper. A murderous, adulterous king. A vicious, sinful, rebellious king of Israel. You see, that's what the grace of God is like. And the Holy Spirit tells us this. You see, He testifies in the Scriptures. And oftentimes, when we want to know how great our salvation is, we go every place but the Word. We want to speak to other Christians we want to go to a meeting. We want to have a certain emotion. When the reality of that is all of those things should be driven by the Word. We should have emotions. We should be with other Christians. We should go to meetings. But they, we are driven on to these things by the Spirit speaking in His Word. The Bible should not be a dusty book that you blow the dust off ten minutes before you go to bed. Because you know, after about that, that's all you can take. The Bible is something that you begin your day with because it energizes you to go out and tell others about Jesus, to work for the glory of God, to be self-sacrificing. That is what the Bible is. And that's why the Holy Spirit has written it by His servants, the prophets. The prophets brought a message, a message that was unexpected. You see, they were inquiring what person or what time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when He predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. You see, central to the message of the prophets, central to the message of grace, is twofold. It's the suffering of Jesus and His glory. What does the Bible say? Does it say suffering and glory? Look down at your Bible. Mine says suffering and glories. Doesn't it? This is a very rare occasion for the plural. And I would put it to you that the Holy Spirit is speaking the messages, the suffering of Jesus and the glory of Jesus and the glory of His people. You see, we share in His sufferings and we share in His glory. That is the grace that has come unto us. This is where the Jews stumble. They read Isaiah 53 and they don't understand it. But before we get to cross with the Jews, sometimes we need to learn that lesson personally, don't we? Peter's quite emotional here. When they testified beforehand, when they predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow... And then if we turn back in our Bibles to Matthew 16, we see our Lord predicting this to his apostles, don't we? He tells them that he as the Christ must suffer and then be raised. And what does Peter, this brilliant Bible scholar, this student of the prophets, what does he say? No, Lord, that's not right. You're not supposed to suffer you see that? And see, here he tells his people, God's people, that the sufferings of Jesus come first, and it is the glory that follows. This is hope for us. Because just as certainly as Jesus suffered, we will experience suffering. And just as certainly as Jesus is glorified, we will be glorified. It comes back to this whole concept of the salvation that Peter's talking about. One of the items that he talks about in this is resurrection, isn't it? This is the grace that is prophesied, that is predicted beforehand. Peter is telling you this. Don't be surprised by sufferings. And don't be discouraged by them either. The servant is not above his master. He's encouraging them And I'm encouraging you, if there are difficulties in your life right now, that's okay. You can face them, because there is glory to follow in Jesus Christ. A grace that is prepared, a grace that is predicted by the prophets. But it doesn't stop there. You see, the train doesn't get to the point of us and stop. The grace train. No, it goes on. It is proclaimed because notice how these prophets predict and proclaim this gospel. In verse 12, it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit. You see, grace as it is proclaimed is inherently not self-centered. The prophets knew what they were talking about wasn't directly for them. And yet, they couldn't stop talking about it. Now, think about that. Have you ever had that experience? If you look at a new car, or a new computer, or a new house... And you know that you ain't going to get it. Do you talk on and on and on and on about a mythical house that you know you can't have? Now let me change the picture. You're about to close on your first home. You're about to buy your first car. You tell everyone what the air pressure is on the tires you tell everyone the difference between metallic blue and dark blue and why yours is metallic and not dark, right? Why two and a half bathrooms is better than two, right? But you see, that's not what grace is like. It doesn't focus it upon ourselves. It's outward focused. So even those who know for a fact, who have been told by God that this fulfillment of grace will not happen to them, They can't stop talking about it. You want evidence of that? This afternoon, perhaps before or after lunch, flip through and read Hebrews 11. They knew that they would not be perfected without us. And they couldn't stop talking about it. Is that the way you view grace? Is that how amazing grace is for you? Is that the way you look, for instance, at something like a building? Do you think how wonderful that design will be for the hundred of us here? Or is it something that you know that will be a service and a ministry to dozens that we've never met? May not even live here now. You know what? May not even be born yet. I can think of one. Is this not how amazing grace is? It takes us out of ourselves and into others. You see, we don't want to be content with grace coming to us. Grace uses us like a channel. It comes into us and it flows to others. We are to be instruments of proclamation like these prophets. The prophets told Peter. And what did Peter do? He told us. He told me. And I'm telling you. And you can tell people at work and they'll tell their families, and so on, and so on, and so on. That's what grace is like, because the proclamation of grace is Spirit-driven. Notice what Peter says here in verse 12, that these things were predicted, the things that have now been announced or preached to you by the Holy Spirit. You see, the things that they were ministering, the Holy Spirit was behind the Holy Spirit is behind prophecy. The Holy Spirit is behind preaching. You see what Peter's saying there? If anything that I am saying has any effect on your soul, it is not because of me. It's because of the Holy Spirit. He is the one who uses the preaching. He is the one that uses the word of God. You see, these things aren't secret. The same one who writes the Word of God illumines the Word of God in our hearts. This is the proclamation. It comes by the Holy Spirit and it is an amazing message. Do you notice what it is? It's the things that have now been announced. This doesn't sound like much of a big deal, does it? The things that have been reported. The things that you heard about. But remember what these things are. These things are verses 2 through 9. That God has elected a people from all eternity. That God is sanctifying a people. That God is sanctifying them to obedience. That God wants you to have peace. That God wants to bless you. That God wants to give you an inheritance. That God wants to get you through trials. Those are those things. You see, we need a little grammar lesson. We need to remember. We need to remember the context. That's what's been announced to us. The glory of salvation. And Peter concludes here by giving two word pictures about how important this message is. The first thing is, he says in verse 10, he says, you know, the prophets, they couldn't get enough of it. Back when I come, back where I come from, we call that, they ate it up with a spoon. They couldn't get enough of it. Do you see what he says here in verse 10? They inquired carefully. They searched. They were inquiring they were poking, they were prodding, they were looking. What about this? What about that? They couldn't get enough of it. That's how amazing this message was. They didn't just say, well, I'm on the prophetic clock from about 10 to 3. They think I'll pop off some prophecies to Libya, one to Edom, two to Judah. No. They were obsessed with it. They were absorbed with what this grace is. He gives us another word picture. Look in verse 12. He says, these are the things which angels long to look into. Angels, you know, the beings that are sinless. The beings that stand before the very throne of God and say what? Hymn number 100. Holy, holy, holy. They long to look into these things. To peer like an outsider is the way the word ducks it's the same word that's used about looking into the open tomb looking to see what's there i wonder what's there that's what the angels desire you see that's how amazing this grace is this grace is so amazing that we should give thanksgiving to god for it not just that we know about it but that we possess it peter says and we should be above all people eager to bring this message to others, to tell others how amazing this grace is. May it be said in generations of Christ's church that we searched and inquired diligently about this grace, the grace that was not for us, but the grace that was for you outside, so that you might know about it, so that future generations might know this same grace that we have experienced. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You that You have blessed us by this Your Word. Lord, we ask that You would meet with us even now as we come to Your table, that we might see the amazing nature of Your grace. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.